and welcome. Today's episode of iLoop is a bit different, especially as the voice you will hear will be mostly mine. I share with you today a recording of a deep coaching session I had only yesterday with Deepthi Singh, who is a life coach and is part of a wonderful community of people who are learning the art of deep transformational coaching with Leon van der Poel. The session I'm sharing with you culminates a series of coaching sessions I've had with Deepthi and other coaches in the Deep Coaching Intensive Community, of which I too am a part. When I went into the session, I had no idea I would publish it. Deepthi was masterful in the way she let me be my vulnerable and authentic self. She heard me and she held me in her compassionate presence. And you will witness a genuine shift within me. It is a powerful real life example of how we can find solutions to even the most difficult problems when we are given the space and the silence to let the answers within us emerge. Alcoholism takes many prisoners most of whom are not even drinking. Living with alcoholism comes with many social taboos and deep-seated shame. Most people feel reluctant to share their story because of fear of judgment or because they simply want to forget and move on. I am sharing my family's story today because I believe we need to look at it with greater compassion and openness. I hope this episode will spark a conversation and sow a seed of greater understanding about the underlying causes and the consequences of alcoholism. I have to warn you that because of the unscripted and largely unedited nature of the audio, there is raw emotion and one swear word. So caution is advised. Thank you for listening. Hi, Rohini. Hi, Deepthi. Welcome to our session here today. Thank you so much. What are we here to explore today? I would like to explore the current sort of internal conflict that I'm experiencing between um, medical advice and what I feel is the right thing to do is informed by my everyday experience of living with the problem which it feels to me that there's no solution for um, it feels like a problem that needs to simply be endured um, yeah, so that kind of at a, a big picture level is what I want to to explore. Thanks for sharing, Rohini. What I can hear you say is you, are, you have an internal conflict that's going on. And one that says what I feel is the right thing for me to do. And what I think versus what I think is the right thing for me to do. Mm -hmm. From where you are thinking is from what you have read, understood from other people's perspective, from your medical knowledge. Yeah. And from where you are feeling is from your everyday experience of living with the problem. Yeah. And sometimes the problem is just telling you that just endure with it. Yeah. And there's a, there's a third element to it, actually, because I think my gut tells me that, um, that in some ways, if I go with what my heart is telling me, that, that I'm giving in in some ways, 
I am, I am allowing myself to be controlled. Um, so, I mean, maybe it helps if I just elaborate on that because, mm -hmm. you know, rather than speak about it in, in those sort of theoretical terms. So, you know, my, my ex-husband is, um, is, I think, in the final stages of alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've done a lot of reading on it. I, I probably understand much more about alcoholism than, you know, most people do, because hopefully most people haven't had to, um, to experience it in the way that I have. And what I have come to understand is that when you get into that final stage of alcoholism, it is incredibly difficult for the person to give up alcohol. Um, not only is it phys physically very difficult, but the, the thing that, you know, that the willpower, the, the mental capacity, the, uh, the emotional sort of um, resourcefulness to change course has been so diminished by that point that you know a very very tiny percentage of people can stop and you know turn turn things around so i think given that um the only way that he's going to stop drinking is if he is forced to stop drinking so like when he's in hospital and you know he doesn't have access to alcohol if, if he's put into a rehab situation where he doesn't have access. Um, and that obviously is going to be a temporary thing. You know, he, he's not, he's not going to be spending all his time there. So as soon as he comes back into the normal world, he immediately goes back and buys his alcohol. But because his physical condition is becoming more and more frail, every time he has to make that trip, it takes so much out of him. So he will spend three days preserving his energy just so he could make that, what used to be like a 15 minute trip back and forth is now becoming longer and longer because it's so much harder for him to walk even with a Zimmer frame to the shop and back. And the last few times he's done that, you know, he's he's collapsed or he's uh, fallen, he's had a knee fracture and then he's ended up in hospital. So the, the dilemma for me is this, either I can take the moral high ground and say to him, I am not gonna enable you, I'm not gonna buy you the alcohol because you know I don't agree with your drinking and I don't wanna be seen to be enabling you. But if I do that, then, and nobody else is going to buy it for him either, then he has to go to the shop and he puts himself in danger. He puts possibly other people in danger by doing that. Um, and the result is the same, you know, he's still drinking, but there's an added complexity of, you know, he could end up injuring his, himself. He could end up having an accident that involves somebody else. So all these things. And then, you know, obviously he takes up uh, precious healthcare resources by going into a hospital where they restore him only for him to come back and do it all over again. So I've watched this behavior for the last two years. And um, I'm coming to a stage where I'm beginning to think, you know, I don't know how much longer he has on this earth. Um, I can either be continue to feel like, you know, I'm not letting you win by buying alcohol for you. And if you want to, you, you carry on and, you know, be it on your head. And that would be fine if he didn't actually live with us. You know, if he was, if we separated and he lived on his own, then of course he would have to find a way, but he lives in this house and I am still responsible for him. And even though I might say to him, Look, if you go out and if you fall, don't expect me to come and help you. I think at, at a core level, both of us know that if, if it came to it, I would go and help him because I don't have it in me 
to completely ignore him when he's vulnerable and in need, you know? So, so I kind of ask myself, what is it achieving really? You know, is it, is it, is it just me feeling right? I'm not allowing you to control me uh, by, you know, making me buy your alcohol for you. And, and, you know, I don't want people to judge me for buying alcohol for you. And so I'm not going to, but knowing the risks that that brings, or should I kind of go with my heart and my heart is telling me, you know what, forget what everyone else thinks, because here's, here's the insidious thing about it, that every person I've asked, you know, like even medical doctors, I'm like, what should I do? Should I, should I give him alcohol? Should I give him small doses? And they said, well, we can't advise you on that. You need to speak to someone who's an alcohol specialist. I speak to the alcohol specialist and they will say, well, he really needs to talk to somebody here who can help him. And I'm like, but he doesn't want to talk to anybody. He doesn't want, he doesn't think he needs help. He doesn't want help. So it's kind of this almost abnegation of responsibility where everyone's like, well, I don't want to be the one giving you advice. You know, it's, 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 it's almost like, an untouchable problem where the conventional wisdom is, well, he really needs to stop, you know, because his alcohol is not good for health. Well, thank you, Sherlock. I already know that, but he doesn't want to. And so I can't force him to. And, you know, as long as the medical world thinks he's got mental capacity, well, no one can force him to do anything, you know, because as long as he has mental capacity, he can do whatever he likes. It's his life, it's his health, it's his choice but I have to live with it. So, um, so I'm beginning to think, well, maybe what I will do is I will just buy him alcohol. And uh, if he drinks himself to his grave, well, he made that choice. But then I have to live with the potential judgment that I supplied him with a thing that kills him. So I think I need to make a decision on which part of my, which center of intelligence do I listen to? <laughs> because my gut is also reacting so strongly against this because my gut is telling me, you know what, Rini, what's so hard to not be controlled by this man who is, even now, you know, in his bed, you know, vulnerable as he is, is controlling you. And um, that you have won this battle, partly won it by getting a divorce. And now by letting him control you in this way, what, is the, what was the point of getting a divorce? I mean, okay, I, I don't genuinely believe what was the point, because I think there is definitely a freedom knowing that I'm choosing to do what I'm doing. I'm not being forced to because I'm his wife. I'm choosing to be responsible for him. Uh, I'm not feeling that I have to be responsible, if that makes sense to you. Um, so my gut is kind of reacting very strongly against this because it's feeling like you know, we have the potential here to be free, but but those chains, once again, you're, you're willingly putting those chains back on your ankles. Uh, but my heart is telling me, you know what, this is not gonna last forever. And rather than have all these peaks and troughs and all this drama, you know, just give him what he wants and let him go in peace because he doesn't want to die in hospital. He has this extreme aversion and this fear of dying in a hospital bed. And he wants to die in his own bed. And just let him have that wish. And it's, it's funny because one of my daughter's friends, you know, we were, she, she'd invited her friends over last night and we were just sitting around, we were, 
you know, joking, making light of something that's quite heavy. And, uh, and then I was telling Sonali, my daughter, you know, that this is what I'm beginning to think I need to do. And in the past, she's been very strong about, you know, mom, this is what you got to do and, you know, don't let them control. I think she's also coming around to thinking, yeah, you know, just give him what he wants. And, and then our friend, you know, jokingly said, yeah, it's like a gentle euthanasia. And I kind of, it just, it just kind of hit me in the, in the gut when he said that. And I know he was only joking and, and I kind of immediately got defensive. I said, no, no, it's not. He says, no, no, I'm only joking, I'm only joking. But then I thought, actually, he may be joking, but there's a truth in there, isn't that? Because what I'm doing is I'm hastening his end. Because I know that, that you know, by every time he goes into hospital and they, they, they kind of force good health back on him, we're just delaying the inevitable because he's going to come back. And what I'm doing is by just providing him a steady supply where he can just stay in bed and doesn't have to go out anymore. I am in a way enabling a sort of gentle euthanasia. How does that make me feel? Because he's never expressed openly a desire to die. He's not said I want to die, but he is also in unsaid ways, he has shown that that, you know, his life has become his bedroom and his drink and, um, you know, it's become a, uh, a thimble. <laughs> if you can think about life, you know, which, which is this abundant thing with infinite possibilities, you know, he has diminished what he thinks life into a tiny thimble. And he's drowning uh, in that thimble, which just mainly is consisting of alcohol. And I am saying, okay, if that's what you want, I will supply this alcohol for you to drown in. And that doesn't sit very well with me on an intellectual and a gut level. So, so I want to explore it and I want to get, I want to get clear that if I do this, if I do this, that I am comfortable with, with being blamed for hastening what I think is, is an inevitable um, consequence. And it's kind of like, you know, I was, I was talking to somebody else, it's kind of like watching a car crash in like extreme slow motion. It's like, you know what's gonna happen, but it's, it's taking forever to get to its conclusion. And you can try everything possible to, to change course, but you can't because it's, it's just heading in that way. And, and it's almost like I'm saying, well, can we just take the decision to not slow it down so much so it can take its natural course? But then it's not really a natural course if I'm supplying him with the alcohol that he so craves. Yeah. So that's where I am. Lumini, what I can sense is that you are in conflict within yourself between your heart and your gut. Your heart is just telling you, just let him be. 
he is any which way is not going to last forever. Let him go in peace. In that bed that he always wanted to, instead of in the hospital bed. Yeah. While that gut of yours is saying, you don't need to be this person. You won your half battle by getting the divorce. Where is the other battle? You are not responsible for this. You are choosing to take up this responsibility. And it's constantly poking at you. And eventually, you're blaming yourself for the path that he is heading himself in. Even if you mention that if I do not, if I say a no to him and I tell him I'm not going to supply him with alcohol, he's any which way is going to go and get it. Yeah. Whether it takes 15 minutes, it'll take half an hour. And the repercussions of that, if suppose he's fallen down or anything else, all that is eventually going to come to you. So whether you give him the alcohol or you don't buy him the alcohol, he is getting that alcohol any which ways. Yeah. From where is this blame coming for yourself, Rohini? I think the blame comes from my head because of the, the general narrative around um, people who you know, become addicted to anything really, that um, I think there's a lot of shame around addiction. Um, although I think there's an increasing awareness that behind an addict's addiction is a deep trauma or underneath, you know, that there is some trauma, some kind of childhood trauma or something something that is that has led them to to become addicted and um, I have tried to understand what that trauma might be and I have you know I have a sense of what has led him to become like that you know with his upbringing um, a culture of heavy drinking within his family. Um, I can see, I can see why the seeds were sown quite early on. Um, I think the blame comes from from also feeling maybe, it's not even so much blame. I think I, I don't necessarily blame myself, but I take, I take responsibility. And I think there's a, there's a big difference between the two. Um, Cause blame games are, you know, something that victims play. And by blaming even my younger self, I would be, playing victim now, like, you know, you should have done that. And I think I did what, what I thought was best in the circumstances. So there's no point me blaming myself, but I can own up to, um, to the fact that maybe I played, I turned a blind eye to certain things that perhaps I should have, you know, taken notice of sooner. Um, that by turning a blind eye, maybe I enabled him for a lot longer than I should have. So I think there's that element of having been a codependent and letting him get this far. Um, but I think the, the, the main thing is what will people think? And I like to I like to think that I don't care very much about what people think because I have a strong sense of what's right and wrong. But I guess at a deep level, I do care. 
I do care what people think. I, I don't want people to think that I, um, that I took the easy option because it feels like the more honorable and more difficult option might've been to say to him, look, you're on your own. Um, you made this choice and you know, you have to live with it and kind of do what I've done up to now, which is make, if he's making, but, but you know, kind of be there for him to help him. And actually what's really uncomfortable for me that when people find out that I'm actually his ex-wife, but I'm still here, you know, looking out for him, they think, oh, you're such, you're such a good person. You, you, you're amazing. And I just feel really, I feel like, no, I'm not actually. I don't, I don't think I'm being a particularly amazing person. I'm just, in some ways I'm a coward because I don't have the courage to just walk away and just let him be. And maybe what he needed was for me to just let him be so he could help himself. And instead I kind of stayed and I've sort of, I've stayed and made him dependent on me to the point where he just, it's like his, his, we all have this mental muscle of resilience and, you know, ability to deal with stuff. And because he's not had to, the minute I saw that he was not dealing with something properly or well, whether it was, you know, uh, the cooking or, you know, he used to, he used to do all our cooking when I was working, he was, he used to joke that he was the master chef and he used to cook these amazing meals. And when I used to come back from work, you know, he would have done the cooking and I could, as I was walking back from the station, I could smell his cooking. It was just this wonderful, welcoming sense. And as he started to drink more and more, his cooking became too rich, too, too spicy, whatever. And I, when I stopped working, but I, I'm sorry. It's absolutely okay. Just be yourself. So while I was still working, it was convenient for me to have him do all these things that I couldn't do because I was, I used to work quite long hours, you know. I used to be out of the house about 11 or 12 hours, including my commute. And um, um, he used to take care of the kids, he would, he would do the cooking and, you know, basically manage the household and, and anything that I didn't have time or energy for, like fixing things, you know, he took care of all of that. And when, when his drinking started to get a little bit on, out of control, I think maybe he was starting to enter into that final stage of alcoholism. Um, you know, he became less reliable, he became less responsible. Uh, and it started to affect my children. It started to affect, you know, just the things that I used to depend on him for. And I, it was part of the reason why I quit my job because I thought I can't do my full-time job and, you know, do it justice while also, because at that point I really wanted to separate from him because I thought your drinking is ridiculous. I need to separate. And so I, um, I left my job. And then because I was at home, I basically took over, you know, all the things that he used to do. I took them over. I started to do the cooking. I took care of the kids. And he essentially became redundant. And it gave, gave him even more time to drink. 
so I find, kind of feel if there's anything in hindsight, I'm not sure I would have done anything different because the reason I quit my job was to take, take control of my family unit and, and you know, be there for my kids. Um, but I think that any, any bit of motivation he might have had to just get up and do stuff was taken away from him because I took, took on the, the role. And that just accelerated with time. You know, where before, if there was a problem, I'd ask him. And when I realized he couldn't do it, I, I just stopped asking him, I, I figured out. So I got really good at doing all kinds of stuff, you know, all kinds of stuff that I never used to have to do. Like even including, you know, learning how to fix my washing machine, how to disconnect my washing machine, you know, amazingly, useful things I learned in the process. But with every little new thing I learned, I made him even more useless because now he had no role to play at all. So I think if there's anything, think back, I, I feel responsible for diminishing his world Um, at least within our family unit. That doesn't mean to say that he didn't have a choice. He always had a choice to do things and do them well and continue to take an interest in, in life. But he, he chose not to. He chose the easy way of just, you know, retreating into his increasingly smaller world. Uh, So I feel when people say to me, oh, you're, you're amazing. You're still here for him. I want to say to them, well, I'm not sure I agree with you. You know, I'm not, I'm partly here because I want to sleep at night knowing I didn't walk away from somebody who is so vulnerable. But, you know, in the process, I'm still not able to sleep at night because he keeps me awake. Because he's got no concept of time. He will get himself into trouble. Um, he will end up, you know, needing help and he'll be calling out in the middle of the night like at 3 30 this morning I heard him calling my name so I went running down to see what had happened sometimes it's something important something sometimes it's just something stupid like where's the remote control to the tv I'm like you woke me up for that so yeah um I think what I'd like to do, what would help me, I think, is to just speak openly about this. You know, it's like they say, uh, rather than wait for someone else to judge you, um, I put it out there and I say, look, I judge myself, but I'm still gonna do it anyway, because my heart tells me that this is the right thing to do. And it may spark a conversation about something that no one wants to talk about because it's an uncomfortable truth to live with. And I'm sure that my, my family is not the only one who's dealing with this. I think I'm lucky because I'm, uh, I'm in a position where I control so much of what happens in my family unit. I control the finances. But I also have compassion. Some, I have control and compassion. And I think not everyone has that combination. Mm -hmm. 
that is that is an interesting piece of insight that I've just so really I do have control I do have choice if I'm enchaining myself I'm choosing it's actually not even chains. I'm just choosing to come back into a place that's not comfortable because staying away feels even more uncomfortable. I think what I would like, the final piece of that control with compassion is, you see, I, I kind of, sometimes I, I have like an out of body experience <laughs> and I watch myself mm. and um, I, when he calls out to me at the most, you know, inopportune, inopportune time or any time actually, it feels like any time is now inopportune for me because I don't look forward to going up to see what he wants. It's that I go in with the energy of what do you want? And I remember him saying to me when he was in hospital and he would call the nurse and if she came and said, what do you want? He would get very upset. Like, you know, that's no, that's no way to talk to me, you know? this is your job, surely you could be polite and respect respectful. And I was thinking, well, I'm being disrespectful and impolite. But because I am not a nurse whose job it is, maybe he can't turn around to me and say, can you be respectful, please, you know? That's no way to talk to me. And I don't like that about myself. So I need to find Because I feel that, uh, that when he dies, even though it's an outcome that my family and I know is gonna come and on some level we are waiting for it because it, it will set him free, will set us free. But when it comes, I know there will also be a lot of grief. Grief for, for what could have been a grief for the man we lost a long time ago. And also a grief for how he practically decayed to his end. And I know for me personally, that I will grieve for all the times I was, I was, I was, all the times I was mean to him. All, all the times I said, what do you want? What the fuck do you want? Why are you calling me? You know, these kind of things that I said to him. And I will, I will look back and I will wish I could go back in time. <laughs> Be nicer. 
be more respectful and polite. But it's just so hard. It's just, it's just so hard because he's, it's like the biggest test. It's the biggest test of my life. And I know it's a test. And I feel sometimes I'm failing because I'm not able to genuinely be compassionate with him. And I'm sort of, when I'm doing things for him, I'm doing them begrudgingly and out of a sense of duty and responsibility. And I feel I need, I think maybe the reason this is taking so long is because the universe knows that if I don't find that compassion, genuine compassion in my demeanor towards him and how I deal with him and give him the love that he is so desperate, you know, it's so sad Deepthi, because he must feel so unloved because every time I see him, he tells me, I love you, I love you. And I can't get myself to say it back to him because I know if I say it back to him, it will be like this, this boost to him and he will bounce back and he will recover and he will have false hope. And he will say, I always knew that you loved me. And I can't make him see that, no, no, when I say, if I, if I say I love you, I'm saying it out of compassion. It's not because I romantically still love you. And if I'm being kind to you, it's because you're a fellow human being. You're, you've been part of my life longer than anyone outside of my, you know, actually even longer than my parents, because I haven't, you know, lived in India for over 30 years, um, but he won't understand. And so I, I deliberately um, hold back from showing him any warmth or compassion because I think he'll take it the wrong way. And I've also been advised by my solicitor that, you know, don't give him the wrong impression so I think my heart tells me just, just be compassionate. If he wants to hold your hand, just hold his hand, sit with him, listen to him. But something inside me is just so tired of doing that and of it being taken the wrong way. There's something inside me just resists and won't let, won't let me do it. So, um, yeah, that's where I am at the moment. And um, I would love to find a way to be okay with whatever his response is. If I did actually show up in a more loving, compassionate way and not just go through the motions of being compassionate. Rohini, can you walk me to that place within you that resists and holds you back from letting you show that compassionate side of you to him? I think, yeah. So what holds me back is previous experiences of it, it being misunderstood for something it is not and for that to be used against me. It's like, you know, when people take kindness for weakness 
And so you realize, well, you know, I want you to see I'm strong. And so therefore, I'm not going to be kind because you, every time I'm kind to you, you think I'm weak. But I'm beginning to think that ultimately, should it matter to me what he thinks? You know, if he, if he, if he ends his life believing that I still love him, that he is loved, well, isn't that, isn't that the thing that's going to give him peace, even if it's not true? Well, I do love him on a, you know, I love him as a, not in a romantic way, but I love him because he's been such a big part of my life. We've shared a history together. I love the man he once was. I love the spirit of that man that is still inside him beneath the layers of this person I don't recognize because of his drinking. And I asked myself, okay, so in the past he made you regret, but did I really regret the kindness? I don't know if I regretted the kindness. I, I did not regret the way I showed up because it helped me um, sleep better at night knowing I, I did the right thing. but he certainly made it difficult on a real practical level for me to let go and to, to move on. But then having said that, I have managed to move on to some extent. You know, I have got my divorce. I have, I have uh, managed to put some boundaries and uphold them. So perhaps I, perhaps I need to sit with the feeling of what it would be like to just be my genuine compassionate self with him and take him on a journey where he can be at peace sooner and to a place where he then feels ready to move on to his next place, wherever that might be. So Rohini, would you like to sit right now and feel like, how would it be to be your gen genuine self? Yes, I would right here if you want to describe or share anything just feel free do you want to be there with yourself i'm right here holding you i think what i'm seeing is that i create i create a support system of others who are equally as caring and compassionate with him. So it takes a little bit of the pressure of me to always be the one showing up with the care and compassion. For me to turn to these people so I can go away and take a break and recharge my batteries and be true to myself and experience the freedom that I so long for. And in fact, um, this weekend I'm going, going away uh, to a place in England called the Lake District. I'm going with my children. We're gonna drive up there. We've got, we've hired, we've rented an Airbnb house for two nights. 
and it's going to be the first time my kids and I are going to be going away anywhere since 2018. Um, and uh, I have requested a carer to come in, you know, they're going to come three times a day, but they're also going to spend the night here in the house. So there, there will be someone here if he needs help or if he gets into trouble. And uh, this Kara is just so lovely, so compassionate. And I found out only yesterday that she won Kara of the Year Award last month. Um, and then there's another, there's two other carers who come, um, who I think are genuinely just angels. And of course they, you know, they do this as a job, but I think even when you do it as a job, it's not a given that somebody who's doing it as a job is going to do it in the most compassionate, caring way. Like that nurse that he was complaining to me about. So I feel that maybe I am getting to that place where I have got support. I don't feel so alone. My daughter has moved back home with me. And that again is like the universe sending me some support. She's 21 and um, it's, it's, it's just the most unbelievably helpful thing to have her here. You know, she brings a very fresh, positive energy. Uh, in fact, last night we had a situation where I went to check on my ex-husband and suddenly I didn't see him on the bed. I'm like, where's he gone? And then I suddenly saw his little head at the other end of the bed. And I said, what's happened? And he just like looked really scared. And I went and he managed to get himself trapped in this really weird position where, you know, he was, he'd obviously been trying to get back on the bed, but his leg, legs had given way and he was trapped with his leg caught between the radiator and, and the wall and the other leg. It's such an awkward angle. And I was like, oh my God, how do I get him out of this without potentially injuring him? And then I called my daughter and I said, should I get, you know, should I call the ambulance? And she said, no, mom, we'll just move him. You know, we'll just help him move. And then she was so calm. And then with her help, you know, we moved the bed, which was really, really heavy. And I couldn't have done it on my own, but, and then we helped him to get back on the bed. And I just thought, thank God that she was there because, you know, she was able to come in and look at it with a completely fresh pair of eyes. And, um, but yeah, as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking having these other people there with me, alongside me, is making me feel less alone and less depleted. And so if I can draw on their help and support and energy, then I will find more within me to be compassionate, to be kinder, to be more loving towards him. And I think, I think if we can all just do that, maybe he will get to a place of acceptance and peace sooner because it is so much better for him to pass on to the next world, making peace with who he is in this life. Because what I've read and what I understand of, you know, the Buddhist tradition and maybe also in Hinduism, I don't know, is that if you have, if you, if you, leave this mortal coil with lots of unresolved things, you take them with you to the next life. You know, they don't just get left behind with your body. You take them with you. And that's no good for him. I know it's not my job to help him, but if I can do my little bit to help him be more at peace, then I think that will make me feel more at peace. I think that's what my heart is telling me.
Wow, Rohini, I can sense that genuine compassion coming out from you. What the universe is throwing at you to be this person. I can sense that person emerging out of you. Would you like to just sit with all that you have spoken today? Just sit in silence with your heart space, with your gut. Just breathe through all of this. Having so much awareness about where you are. You've come so far. I've just, Deepthi, I have to share this kind of epiphany that's coming up for me right now is that the reason this is happening for me is because I have the ability to articulate this in a way that will really help people. And I've been thinking, you know, should I write about it? Should I, should I um, speak about it? And then it suddenly occurred to me, you know, that I am speaking about it. Like in this session with you, in a previous, you know, a couple of previous coaching sessions I've done. And maybe what I need to do is have the courage to release those sessions to the world. Because what could be more authentic than have me speak my truth about what it's like and how it feels and the journey of reconciling with very conflicting um, desires and motivations to arrive at a place where maybe the answer lies, I don't know. I mean, I guess we will find out. But it's suddenly, suddenly I feel like something is telling me, you know what? That the truth that you have spoken in these deep coaching sessions, it cannot get more authentic if you try to recreate it. And why wait? What am I waiting for? Part of me has been waiting for a time when it would be okay for me to speak about this. And I think maybe that time is now. And that time is, it, it's not waiting for him to die or to get better or to give me permission. The time is now to just be brave and, and if it brings with it judgment, that's okay. But I think, I hope it will bring compassion for him from the people who have turned their back on him, including his family, his friends. He's completely without friends or family. It feels like I'm the only person that he now believes will not let him go. And that's a big burden. And I think I would it would give me peace if people people who knew him could tell him that they still loved him and they forgive him. That they accept what he has become. I think, I think, I think that's what he needs alongside maybe love and compassion from the people closest to him, which includes me and his children. 
And maybe if I can be loving and compassionate, maybe my children will also be able to show it without the resentment and sadness that they feel right now. So I think I have to lead. I have to take the lead and do this. Yeah. What do you think of that? Wow, that sounds wonderful, Rohini. What sense is that that compassionate side of you is a deep desire to bring that peace for your husband. And you want to be the leader for that. You want to be able to create that so everyone around can come back and accept him for whoever he is. Yeah. And he can leave the world with peace. I think that what stops them from coming forward Maybe they think that if they come forward, I will say to them, okay, now he's your responsibility. <laughs> and nobody wants that. So if they could come forward, knowing that that's not gonna happen, but just come forward with love and compassion, and then leave once they've done that bit, knowing that he will still be taken care of, I think that that could work. I think that could work. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. And I think it will free me too, because I think I have been living in the shadow of this for so long. It has made me feel disconnected with the life I want. Um, it's made me feel disconnected with a lot of people in my life because I just don't have the energy of having a conversation that tells them what's really going on. And um, I think this could, in so many ways, be exactly what we need. And I just have to be courageous and just just do it. There'll be a lot of crying in it. Oh, I wish I hadn't cried so much in my sessions, but maybe that's part of the conversation, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. Thank you, Deepthi. Thank you so much. Oh, I really do feel, I do feel lighter. Mm, I can sense that lightness within the room where you had yeah. But I am so burdened at a point, I can see that you've come to a place of being less burdened. I think what has also happened is I finally feel my brain, heart and gut are finally connected with, a, with actually a solution. <laughs> so it's it's gone from being a problem that needs to be endured to a problem that may actually have a solution. That is amazing. That's amazing. Would you like to stay in this connected space of where your heart, your head and your gut are in sync? <sighs> I think I'm, uh, I feel it already, Deepthi. I think, I think I'm good for us to maybe just take a, a minute or so of just staying in this space together, maybe just in silence and breathing. And then to, uh, then to just let it be. Are you complete for our session today? I am. Thank you.